Yeah, for a while we had tape over this outlet that's right below me, and then the tape is gone, and that's the day I spilled. So I'm just to the side, be good. All right. Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha again. Uh, my name is Peter Carlson. I'm one of the uh, the elders, the overseers here. Um, and uh, if you've been around all summer, you know that our senior pastor Chris has been on sabbatical, and uh, the associate pastor Spencer and uh, overseers and elders have kind of gotten some run uh, at the pulpit. So pulpit, music stand, whatever. Uh, and so this is the second time I'm preaching this summer. Uh, I'm really excited about it, and, uh, and I'm gonna, I might pace a little bit today, not because that's how I preach, but because I got this activity tracker on now. You guys, have you guys seen these? So for my birthday, I bought one of these, and um, you're supposed to wear it all the time, including when you're sleeping, and uh, during the day, you push the button and say, it's daytime, and then it counts your steps as you walk around, and you have a goal that you're supposed to set for yourself. And then you sync it to your phone, and it says, you did this many steps, or, you know, whatever. And then when you're sleeping, you push the button and say, I'm going to sleep, and then it tracks how long you've been asleep, and whether you're in light sleep or deep sleep. And then in the morning, you can plug it in and be like, oh, wow, what was I thinking going to bed that late? That was not nearly enough sleep. Uh, I'm going to be in big trouble today. Um, so uh, so I'm trying to, I'm, I might pace just to get those steps in. Um, I'm mostly kidding, but uh, what I've learned from wearing this thing is uh, it's a little bit goofy. I feel like a robot. That's number one. Um, but number two, I, I get a little bit surprised. There are some days when I'm like, okay, I'm at work, and every hour or so, I'll get up and walk around a little bit. And I'm like, I got this. And then at the end of the day, I plug in. I'm like, okay, so the goal is 10,000 steps. And I plug in. I'm going to be doing, I'm going to hit that today. And it's like 6,000. I'm like, what? Is this thing working? And, uh, and then there's other times in the morning, I'm like, I feel pretty rested. So I, I was thinking, like, you were awake for half an hour in the middle of the night. I was like, what? Oh, yeah, that kid was awake, and I was up for that time. No, that's not good. Um, and, I mean, I feel like the goal, the goal of things like this is to create a habit for yourself so you don't have to, like, think of it as this taskmaster that's whipping you, like, get your steps in, even though it does vibrate when you've been sedentary for an hour. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the, the goal, it's not like an electric shock. Come on. Uh, but the goal is to like get yourself into this mindset of like I should be moving more and I should go to bed earlier, so that it just kind of becomes part of you, um, and not so much that you get judged by it and feel really bad about yourself, which is kind of where I am uh, right now. And uh, I think what it's revealing to me is I, re- I really like the idea of being a more active, healthy person, but I don't actually want to do it for real. I just like to have the idea, or like you know, I'm ca- if I if I go on a diet, I'm like I'm going to count calories for a while. I'm going to count calories, and I'm like well, hey, I'm counting calories. doesn't mean I have to hit the goal of my calories. I'm counting them. Isn't that enough? Um, so that's kind of where I am. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make it a habit. And the reason I bring it up is I think it, I think it goes a little bit along with what we're going to talk about today, um, where Jesus is going to talk a little bit about what should we be doing during this time that he's not here. He was here for a while, and then he went to heaven, and now we're in this, like, this prolonged period where he's not here. Um, so uh, what exactly are we supposed to be doing during this time. And uh, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're in a series on the book of Matthew. Uh, if you've been around, you've been part of that. Um, and so we've been preaching through it for a really, really long time. And actually today is sort of the end of um, a sermon or a teaching part that Jesus has been giving his disciples. And uh, it's the very last long teaching that he gives before he goes to the cross. Actually, after this sermon on Matthew, we're going to take a little break from Matthew to do a few other things, and then in the fall, we're going to come back. And when we come back to Matthew, it's already the passion. It's already, like, the next section after this is Jesus saying, 
uh, someone's going to betray me in just a couple days, and, and up from there, it's no more teaching. It's I'm making a beeline to the cross. So this is, the, this is kind of the end cap of Jesus' verbal teaching and instruction uh, to his disciples. So before we, before we read the passage, um, the title of today's sermon is uh, Servants, Sheep, and Goats. So there's a little preview of where we're going. But just to catch us up on this section of teaching that Jesus has been, given, been giving to his disciples, before this happened, he had this long interaction with religious rulers in Israel where he was really, really harsh with them. He had a harsh teaching to them. He was judging them. He was calling them out. He was saying, you're hypocrites, um, and, uh, and you're leading the people incorrectly, and you're going to be judged for that. Um, and towards the end of that teaching, he said, uh, and uh, this temple that you, that you work in is going to be torn down, and not one rock will be left on top of another, this sort of thing. Uh, and then he leaves. And the disciples kind of follow him along, and first chance they get, they sit down like, Sorry, sorry, when is that going to happen? Did you say something about the temple being destroyed? Because we have some serious questions about this. You didn't, ever, you didn't tell us this before. We have some questions like, when is that going to happen? And, and also, what's it going to look like when you establish your kingdom? Because we believe that you're going to be the king, and we want to know what that's, what that's going to be like. So Jesus takes that and launches into this long teaching of, what's it going to be like in the kingdom of heaven? Um, and part of that, um, as has been preached uh, previously by Jesse and Spencer. Part of that is, what's it going to be like, you know, around his crucifixion? What's that going to look like? Uh, what, what, you know, he's prophesying, basically, about what that's going to be like. Uh, but now he's going, he's pushing further. So he's saying, like, after I'm gone, uh, this, is, this is what it's going to be like. And so, last week, um, he talked about, he, he gave a parable about some bridesmaids who were not ready for the wedding. Spencer preached on this and said, uh, there were ten, ten uh, virgins who were ready for this wedding, and five of them brought enough oil to, to last them all night until the, until the bridegroom appeared, and five didn't bring enough. They didn't plan ahead. They were not ready, and uh, they got left out of the wedding feast. So he was saying, in this time in between, I want you to be watchful. Be ready for this, because it's going to come when you don't know, and if you're unprepared, you're going to be left out. So today, we're going to keep going with that same theme. He's going to give another parable and then a final teaching on the whole thing, kind of summing it up. But going on this idea of what's it going to be like in between and what's the very end going to be like when, when he finally returns. So that's kind of where we've been. Here's, here's where we're going. So we're in, uh, we're in uh, Matthew 25. We're going to be starting in verse 14. Uh, it'll be on the screen up here. Part of it's in the insert in like really, really small font because it's a big section. So if you, if you have good eyes and want to try for that, great. Otherwise, grab a few Bible or it'll be up here. So let's start with just reading the first, the first section here, which is, which is the parable. Starting in verse 14. For it, he's talking again about uh, the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another one two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also... He who had the two talents made two more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to, the one, give it to him who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has will, be, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you today um, wanting to hear what you have for us. I pray that you would open our ears to, uh, to this teaching. Uh, I pray that you would speak to us through the words uh, in the book of Matthew. That you would help us to understand uh, what you mean by these things and that you would help us to apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften us to hear teachings that may be difficult. Uh, but that you would make us receptive um, out of your power and work in our hearts. pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so first let's kind of unpack this parable a little bit. Uh, so the characters in this parable, obviously, you've got the master. You've got two, two good servants. We don't know this at the beginning, but we know by the end that there's two servants who are good servants and one who's bad, uh, who doesn't do uh, what he should. And then the, the situation here is, uh, so the master, again, he's going away on a journey. He's got some workers, and uh, he gives them some money to, uh, to use, to invest. Basically, I, I think of it like your boss goes on vacation. The work needs to keep going. It's not your boss is gone, so n- nobody needs to come into work. The, you know, the boss wants the work to keep going, so he says, while I'm gone, you take 10, you take 5, you take 1, and, uh, and use it while I'm gone. I want, the, I want this work to continue while I'm gone. Uh, and then two, obviously, two good servants succeed, and uh, one does not succeed. So that's kind of the gist of the parable. Um, we'll get to what it means at the end in a second. But before I want to, before I talk about what the parable is about, I think we need to talk about what it's not about because I think there's quite a few times when I've heard this parable interpreted in ways that are not not good. So two two main ones that it's not about. It's not about actual money or investing or business acumen. This parable is not Jesus saying, hey, you guys be wise investors, literally, with your money, and you should get 100% return, and uh, that's, that's what I'm asking, is that you be really savvy business people, or, or even that he says, you're going to be a really successful financial business person if you, if you do as I say. It's, it's actually not about actual money, and Spencer and I were talking, it's, it's interesting that, that the that, that word talents is used for the money, because Literally, a talent in those days was a measure of weight, not a measure of, like, amount of currency. So it's hard to understand, like, how, how much does $100 weigh? That's weird. So, but it's funny because the application of this parable talks about, like, actual gifts and literal talents that we have. So then it gets, you get messed up when you talk about, well, now I'm talking about money talents, and now I'm talking about ability talents. So anyway, it's not about money. Um, and we're going to get to more of why it's not about money, but 
just to clarify, we're not going to talk about how to, how to be a good investor today. It's also not about earning salvation through hard work and losing salvation as a result of laziness. It sure sounds like that on the surface. And that's, that's a big thing that I want to talk about today in the sermon is why, why does it really sound like he's saying you have to do a lot of good work in order to be in, and if you're lazy and don't get enough work done, then you're going to be out of my kingdom. Because uh, it sure sounds like that on the surface. So those are two things that it's not about. So try to clear those out of your mind. Um, what it is about is, like I said before, how God's people will spend their time during these interposing days before Christ's return. When I say interposing days, I just mean like the days in between when Jesus left, when he ascended into heaven, said, I'll be back, I'm coming back, but he left, and his eventual return, which will be somewhere after this sentence. So it's, it is about that. How are God's people going to spend their time? And then a big part of it is, what is the relationship between faith and works? And we're going to tackle that in just a second. That's, that's the second one. We're probably going to spend most of our time there. But first of all, let's talk about how God's people will spend their time. Because last week, Spencer said, um, part of what we should be doing this time is being watchful and being ready. Uh, having enough oil in our lamp, having enough faith that's going to last until Christ's return. Um, and now we're saying the other way that we need to be spending our time is to be busy to be doing God's work, basically to be continuing the work that Jesus started. Because again, if you think about it like there's a master who's overseeing this business who leaves, he wants his workers to keep the, that same business going. Um, and apparently in the, in the parable, it's, it's some sort of an investing business where he's using uh, money to make some more uh, money back. So continuing that same work uh, that the master had. So if we want to interpret this a little bit, talking about how God's people will spend their time, we can say, um, see, it's doing this thing again. There's a, there's a missing line of text there. The talents um, are, should be thought of as spiritual gifts and opportunities to use those gifts, okay? So if we interpret this parable a little bit and say, okay, Jesus is the master. He says, I'm going to go away, but, and if you read this later on, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will empower you to do things. So he's going away, but he's leaving the, his servants with uh, spiritual gifts, uh, some power to, to, its, uh, to accomplish these things, and opportunities to use them. Because he's saying, he's saying to his servants, you know, I'm giving you this money, and I want you to, to get some work done. So there's the opportunity as well. So there's two servants. The first two, they're the true followers of Christ who, who do that. Uh, the last servant um, is employed under the master, but he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. So that we can think of him as, as we've talked a lot in Matthew, about one of these uh, people who has the appearance of being a follower, but it, in reality is not. So the outward actions of these servants are a depiction of what the inward reality is for these servants. And that gets back at what I'm talking about with, the, with these activity trackers, right? Just the fact that I have it on doesn't actually make me believe that I want to be more active or anything like that. I have to actually want to do it and make it a priority and make it a habit to get that done. So the outward actions will depict what your inward reality is, as is the case with these servants. Two of the servants are willing to do this work for the master. They're willing to spend time, do these investing things. And when he comes back, they give that money back and they give back what they've earned. 
And what's cool is the master's reaction when they come back, he says, enter into the joy of your master. I mean, what that literally is is share in the happiness that I'm experiencing right now. Be joyful with me. Enter into that joy. And then the other servant is not like that. Uh, so, yeah, our outward actions depict the inward reality of our hearts, and we should be using our time to bring glory to God through our deeds. And another point is that the amount of talents that the first two servants have, the amounts don't matter. The reaction is word for word the same, whether the, the five-talent person earned five more or the three-talent person earned three more. The reaction of the master is exactly the same. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. I will re- I'm going to reward you with more. Enter into my joy. It didn't matter that the three-talent the three servant didn't make five more. It just mattered that he, got a re- that he brought back more than he was given. The outward actions depicted the inward reality for those two first servants. And the same for the last servant. Let's reread what the last servant said when he came back with the one talent plus zero. So he came to his master after hearing what the other people said, and he comes with an excuse. So here's what he says. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. So first of all, the first thing he says to his master is, I know that you're a hard man. I know, I'm not, and he doesn't say how he knows this, but he knows that you're the kind of person who shows up and says, I didn't plant anything here, but I want a crop now. And I didn't put down any seed here, but I want some now. And so he has this in his head, and so he's afraid. And what's he afraid of? He's afraid of, basically, of messing up. He's afraid of a master who's unfair. He's afraid of a master who will come and say, hey, I gave you one talent, and I see that you tried to invest it, and you just lost it, and now you have nothing, and now you're going to be in trouble. So he thought, well, when he comes back, I'm at least going to give him back what he gave me. I'll just bury it in the ground. Um and just give it back. Now, it sure seems like this is an inaccurate depiction of the master based on what the other two servants experienced. Granted, they they did what he asked them to do, but their master did not seem hard, didn't seem like he was being unfair. Um, And even after this, he's not showing that he's unfair. But the master says, and I don't have this highlighted on the screen, but the master says in response to that excuse, now, okay, look, if you seriously believed that I was a hard man who gathered, who reaped what I didn't sow and gathered where I had scattered no seed, if you truly believed that, wouldn't you at the very least have gone to the effort of bringing the money, putting it with a banker, gaining a little bit of interest, we don't know how long he was gone, gaining a little interest, and coming back and saying, look, you, you gave me one and I'll give you back 1.1. You didn't do that. So your excuse doesn't hold up to me. Because 
if you truly, seriously, if you seriously believe that I was this taskmaster who would be extremely angry if you lost my one talent, why wouldn't you at least go a safe route? Little, little, little effort. Just bring it, deposit it, go back, withdraw it, and return it. But no, you wouldn't even do that. You buried it in the ground. So this guy is living, either he's living in paralyzing fear of the master, or by his inaction, he's proving that he doesn't care about the master at all. He doesn't want to see the master succeed. He is lazy, yes, but he's, in a sense, lazy to a fault because he's spitefully just burying the money and returning it when he could have done something with it. The master implies that if he had just bring it to the bankers and gotten the interest, he would have been pleased with that. That's the implication there. But instead, no, nothing. So, just for a second, in the light of the passages before this week's sermon, what would the reaction of some people be to hearing Jesus say, hey, the Son of Man is going to come in judgment, and if you're not ready, you're going to be left out. So, be watchful and be ready. I think the reaction of a lot of people would be like, oh my goodness, that is incredibly scary. I better just sit, sit tight and try not to screw this up and just hold tight until Jesus comes back and just try not to do anything because I'm really worried. This, this is some pretty scary talk that Jesus has given me. And I think this parable is talking a lot to say, look, look, look. This isn't for me to say, try not to screw this up. Just be ready. This is to say, there's something that you need to be doing during that time. Don't live in paralyzing fear of Jesus returning because he's saying, if you truly, truly love Jesus, if, he, if this last servant truly loved the master and cared about the master, he would have said, look, I'm not very good at investing like these other people are. I don't think I'm going to get a whole talent back, for instance, like the, I see this other guy's getting five more than the five he had. So his reaction should have been, well, I'll just do what I can. I'll just do what I can. Because I care about the master, and when he comes back, I want to show that I care about him and that I wanted to do what he asked me to do. So Jesus here is saying, in these interposing days, this is how you should be spending your time. You should be spending your time continuing the work that I have already begun and staying true till the end. And then when I return, I will see that and I will be pleased, and you will share in the joy. So all that's to say, are we talking a lot about works? Are we talking a lot about Jesus saying, you should, you should do a lot of stuff for me? Because that's uh, it's kind of the opposite of what we usually say up here. If Chris Walker's gone, we're not, we're not you know, tearing down everything that Chris and Spencer have built by, uh, by uh, dis- disregarding that and saying something that's the opposite. No, no, no. So The other thing that this parable is about is about the relationship between faith and works. And actually, that that point unpacks a lot better in the second section um, of the passage for today. So before we dive into that fully, let's read the second section, which starts in verse 31 down to 46. This is not, not truly a parable, um, but it's another picture um, of the final judgment. So here, here's Jesus finishing off this teaching. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So again, this is a picture of the final judgment. This is the end of the age, the final throne room where all the people, all the nations come and stand before the throne and it's Jesus on the throne. And a scene like this will take place. So Jesus is on the throne and he has every human who's ever existed standing in front of him and he separates them into two groups and they're referred to as the sheep and goats. So the sheep on the one side he says, those are the ones who showed mercy to the least. The goats, on the other side, those who did not. So, again, in those, in those days, in biblical times, um, sheep and goats were really, really common animals for farmers to, uh, to herd. And a lot of times they had both in their flock and they would just graze them together. Um, but the sheep and goats had different needs. And at times the shepherds would need to go through with, you know, with a crook and say, all right, sheep, get over on on one side and goats get over on the other side and separate them because they had different needs. For instance, sheep grow this really, really thick, warm wool and they need to be kept cooler and go in the shade. And the goats, they don't really care. They don't have that thick wool. Uh, they, they don't need to be in the shade and so do different things. Or sheep get shorn, might have to separate out the, the sheep so they can be shorn. The goats, again, they don't care. So there, there is a need for that. The people who are, that Jesus are talking to would understand this. Like, oh yeah, yeah. So you separate the sheep from goats like a shepherd. You're, you're, now you're saying you're going to separate people. Um, now, these, the sheep and goats line up pretty well, again, with, with the parable that we just talked about. The first two servants of the master are sort of like the sheep. Because Jesus is saying the sheep are the ones who, uh, who do something that they're asked to do, and, the, and then the goats are like the last servant who do not do something that they are supposed to do. So, again, this is this picture into this end times final throne room judgment, and boy, this sure seems like Jesus is saying the people who get into the kingdom are the ones who do this work, and the people who don't get in are the ones who don't do this work. So, 
this is where we're going we're gonna to dive a little deeper into this relationship between faith and works. Because what, what is this, what are we talking about here? We're, we're, we're getting muddled because we say so many times it's not about what you do. We say it's about grace, about what Christ has done. So to launch us into that, let's read a different passage from the book of James. So James is a book that talks quite a bit about works and how they relate to faith. Let's read uh, James 2, 14 to 18. So James is writing, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So, this is in the Bible, and James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we've been saying it's not about what you do, it's about Jesus. So I think the obvious question here is, is James crazy? That's probably the question most of you are asking, is James crazy? Is he writing something that maybe shouldn't be in there? Because I'm getting, now I'm getting really confused. We're talking a lot about works and not a lot about faith. Well, You'd be, you'd be in the same camp as Martin Luther. So I, I grew up in, uh, with some Lutheran teaching, uh, did confirmation and stuff. We talked a lot about Martin Luther. And uh, Martin Luther actually had a problem with James. Martin Luther uh, was a guy who was trying to reform the Catholic Church, and he saw the Catholic Church um, bringing a lot of teaching, saying you have to do all of these things to be saved. And they include uh, buying indulgences from the church, like actually buying things from the church. And they're saying if you don't buy this stuff from us, uh, you are not going to heaven. And Luther did not believe that. And it's, it's good that he didn't believe that. So he was trying to have this movement to say, look, it's, it's not about that. And uh, it's, it's not about doing something. It's about grace alone, by faith alone. It's not about what you do. So then as Martin Luther is preaching this, um, he's reading through the Bible, and he gets to James, and he reads something in James that says, uh, faith without works is dead. It got him riled up. And some, some people, I'm not sure if this is 100% true, some people say that Martin Luther tore the book of James out of his Bible. So, uh, so I think, yeah, they're going to fight. Um, ah! <laughs> they're going to fight. Not really. Um, we got to clear this up a little bit because clearly there's a misunderstanding all the way back to from, you know, the time of Martin Luther and probably before up until now, there's a misunderstanding of, okay, but doesn't the Bible say we have to do stuff? Doesn't, like, aren't you saying that we have to work? And... Aren't you also saying that we don't have to work? So how, is this, how, does, this, how does this reconcile between the two? Um, I think uh, James 2.17, that verse I said, so also by faith, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I th- this is the way we should be thinking of it. <clears throat> and this is a way I think Martin Luther would agree with. If we said, okay, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is not actually faith at all is not actually faith at all. Because true faith always brings out good works in people. If you are truly believing the gospel, making it part of your life, praying, talking to the Holy Spirit, following Christ, good works will come. So it's not something that we should be focusing on, let's get this work done. We should be focusing on, what is the state of my faith right now? What is my relationship to Jesus right now? And if you're in a good place, 
then these good works will come. So that's why James is saying, if you are not doing these works of the Holy Spirit, then I question your faith. I will not, he wouldn't say to them, hey, work harder. You're not getting enough done. He would say to them, hey, what is your faith like right now? That's why he says at the end of his, at that passage, James says, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. So he's, he's calling into question the faith of people who aren't doing something with that faith. Now, a lot of times in the Bible, good works or good deeds um, are characterized in a picture as fruit. We've heard that before, right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all these different things uh, that people might do or have. Um, fruit is how a lot of times the Bible will talk about the things that you do will be like the fruit that grows out of the tree of your life. Um, and we see this all over Scripture. So I'm going to point out a few because I think this is going to help us wrap our heads around this concept. Uh, Jeremiah 17, God is talking through Jeremiah. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his deeds. So again, God is saying, your deeds are kind of like fruit. Okay? Matthew 12, 33. Jesus is talking, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. So again, he's, he's contextualizing good works, and he's saying that they're like fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. So like James says, your faith is shown by the fruit of what you're doing with your life. Now let's look at Matthew 21. So here's Jesus. He's walking into the city. From a distance, he sees a fig tree. And, uh, and then this happens. So 21.18, in the morning, as he, Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And after this, the disciples ask him questions, but they ask him questions like, how'd you do that? Not, not questions, but like, what does it mean? They said, how'd you do it? And he says, you know, a little faith can move a mountain. That's where he talks about mustard seeds of faith. Um, you'll do greater things than even that. But also, I think this is a picture of Jesus seeing from a distance a tree and saying, oh, a fig tree, let's go get some fruit. And he gets over and says, there's no fruit on this tree. And he curses the tree. It's another, it's a removed picture of the throne room scene, right? Where, where he says, you, you're a person, and I bring you before me, and I see no fruit. I see no evidence in your life that you've done anything. And he curses those people. The same way with this, with this tree. From a distance, it looked like any other fruit tree, any other fig tree. But when you get close and you see that it has no fruit, then it's a worthless fig tree. It's not doing what it was created to do. And that's what, I, what raised Jesus' ire was saying, hey, I was hungry and I came to you. You're a fig tree. You know what you're supposed to be doing and you're not doing it. Same, same picture as what we're seeing here later on in Matthew. So I think the point that we're trying to make with some of these passages is that, yeah, what we do is important. It's clearly important because the master in the parable is pleased with the work that they've done. Clearly it's important. But what we do is not what saves us. What we do is not what saves us. Our good deeds, our works, the things that we do are the evidence of whether or not we're saved. They're, they're the second part of the equation, not the first part of the equation. 
And where we get messed up is when we start flipping these two things around and getting confused in our head and saying like, well, I know that the works are important, so let's start there. Let's start with working really hard. And then maybe that's going to get me some faith or get me some favor. And clearly that's not, not the way it works. It's that Jesus saves you and does a work in your life. And from that point on, you are a brand new creation. You're a brand new tree. You're a brand new plant that brings out this fruit. And that is the evidence of the work that's been done on the inside. So a few passages to, to help us understand that dynamic of now that we've categorized this to say, Faith first, and works come later. We can understand a little bit better with some other passages how that plays out. Let's look at another throne room scene. So we've already looked at a throne room scene where Jesus brings all the people before him, and in that one, he talks about sheep and goats. One's going this way, the other's going this way, and he says it's based on seeing the fruit of their faith. If If we apply the template that we just made. Seeing the fruit of their faith is proving to him um, whether they belong or don't belong. But there's another throne room scene that gives us a little bit better understanding of this. Um, In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 20. And this is is such a beautiful picture. So I'm going to read just verses 12 and 15. It's all good, but but 12 and 15 are going to help us understand this a little better. So verse 12 John's writing this, and he says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Okay? So again, this is the same group of people that Jesus had in that picture. Standing before the throne. Jesus is on the throne. Then it says, And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Now we're talking about those first books. The books, according to what they had done. So before we read 15, everyone's standing there, Jesus is on the throne, and they bring out some books. And they start opening the books, and in the book is everything that every person had ever done. Nothing but works. But it says there's another book. And 15 says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here's, here's let's boil this down and try to understand a little better. Everyone's standing there. They bring out a whole stack of books. Everything that's written in that first stack of books, what we've done, 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 what we haven't done, what we haven't done that we were supposed to do, what we've done, what we've done, nothing but what we've done. But there's a second book, and that's the book of life. And when you open up the book of life, what's in it? Not what we've done, it's names. It's not what we've done, it's names. Just names. It doesn't matter what the people whose names are in that book did. It doesn't matter. What's in that book is names. And what those people have done is in the other books. But it doesn't matter. Because in in the end, in 15, it says, If anyone's name was not written in the book, he went with the goats. So it's names. It's not works. We get a fuller picture of the sheep and the goats thing. What's really happening is Jesus is saying, if I judged everyone strictly on what everyone has done, they would all be goats. But Jesus wrote a second book. He wrote the book of life, and in it, just names. Just names. Just names of people that believe. 
that have been saved by the gospel. Ephesians 2, verse 8. You've probably heard these verses. Listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Jesus saved us when we didn't deserve it. We hadn't done anything to deserve it. He saved us. We were his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus. And then he says, here's what you get. Now that I've recreated you, you're going to get all of these good works that I've already planned out for you. They're already set up. You just need to walk in them. So we're not saved by good works, not a result of works. We're saved for good works, according to Paul in Ephesians, that God's already planned out. They're already out there. How about John 15? This is Jesus talking. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so... Prove to be my disciples. So here he's saying he's like the vine with this fruit imagery now. He's like the vine, and we are like the branches of that vine. Separate that branch from the vine and try to grow grapes on it. It's not going to work. Just like we learned from that last servant in the parable, he was not part of the vine. He did not bear anything, proving that he was not part of the vine to begin with. But Jesus says, Abide in me, abide in the vine. And I like the NIV translation. It says, he will bear fruit, much fruit. He will bear fruit. It's not like he might or he should. It's he will. Abide in me and you will bear fruit. He it is that bears much fruit. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And then in 8, he says, this is how God is glorified. This is how God gets joy. That we are bearing fruit and proving that we have been saved, that we have faith, that we are his disciples. That is how he's glorified. So God is like that master who gets joy from seeing that fruit. And then we share in that joy. So again, apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we're that last servant. Apart from him, we're like the goats. And Jesus said, you did nothing for me. Now, how about that? How about that part where he's talking about when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me? What, what are the good works that he has planned for us? Specifically. Well, I can't tell you exactly specifically for you because God has prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. But Jesus, in, this, in the last judgment scene here, when he's talking to the people, in verse 40, um, he says, because well, first of all, they're surprised. Both groups are surprised. The sheep group is like, wait, we did what? I don't remember doing that. And the other group's like, wait, what? When did we not do that? I, both of them are a little bit surprised. But Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, 
you did it to me. So the key here is when he says, to the least of these, my brothers. He's talking to his disciples. He's gesturing to his disciples. Jesus is talking about his followers, his church, the people in the body of Christ. The church on earth is called, in the scripture, it's called the body of Christ. So when he says, doing it to the least of these, you're doing it to me, he's literally talking about himself here on earth right now in this in-between interposing days time. When you serve the church, when you serve Christians or members of the church who are down and out, who are in need, when you serve them, you are doing it to Jesus. And he's saying, this is the kind of thing that shows me your faith, that shows me that you believe when you serve the church. Now, it's unbelievers too, absolutely. But he's saying, especially to the church, especially to the body of Christ. Other places we hear Jesus talking to his disciples and he says, you know, they will know that you have faith. They will know that you are with me by your love for each other. And some people, you know, take that to mean, yeah, and it does mean for everyone, everywhere, regardless of whether they're a believer or not. But Jesus also is specifically saying, when you love each other, when the church loves each other, that's when people know. That's when they know that this is something special. That's when they say, this is beyond just some sort of religion that they're part of. They legitimately love each other. Someone in their church loses a job for a while, the people help out. Someone needs a place to stay, the people help out. That is where we truly, truly see the faith and the love expressed through the body of believers. That's truly where we show the faith and the redemption that God has done within believers. So we're almost done, but I feel like it would be, I, we would be a little bit remiss if we don't talk for just a second about uh, the goats and the last servant and what that's like. In verse 34, after he says, good job to the sheep, he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then in 41, he says to those on his left, to the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, hell is real. If you read the Bible cover to cover, you'll find that Jesus talks about hell more than any of the other writers, for sure in the New Testament. Jesus talks about hell. Jesus clearly is telling us hell is a real place that people will go. But what's interesting here is for the sheep, he says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The kingdom was prepared for believers before the, the earth was created. But for the goats, he says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared not for you, prepared for the devil and his angels. So God did not go and create hell as a reaction to sin. Hell was already there. Hell was already there for the devil and for his followers. And when the goats get sent there, it's because they are among the devil's followers. They're going to a place that they are not meant for. We, are, we were created to glorify God and end up in the kingdom that he prepared before he created the world. But for the people that choose to not be part of that, the people that are not believers, that are not redeemed, 
that say to the, to the vine, I want to be cut off from you, to say to the master, I do not want to see you experience joy and I would rather just sit back. Those are the people that end up going to hell. And Jesus says it's an eternal fire. The way that I like to think about it, not like to, but the way I think about it, contrast eternal life. The opposite of that should be eternal death. Contrast eternity with God in the physical presence of God with eternity completely cut off and separated from God with zero interaction with God. Even now, people who don't believe are experiencing an interaction with God because we live here on this planet that God created for us. But hell is going to be the absolute cut off from every influence and interaction with God. That should scare us. And I think that's why Jesus says it so often is to scare us to say to those of us who are believers, thank God for creating a kingdom and for pulling me towards that kingdom when I was going the other direction. And it should scare people who are not believers to say, I don't want that. I want to go to the kingdom that was prepared for me. I want to go there. I don't want to live in rebellion against God. I want to experience that faith. So that's a part of this equation too, and it's something that we can't overlook. We can't be one of those churches that overlooks hell and says, we just don't talk about that. We need to talk about it. Jesus talked about it, and, uh, and it's real. So we need to talk about that. All right. Some conclusions to draw from all of this talk of faith and works and servants and sheep and goats. What can we take away from this? First of all, I think, like I said just a second ago, we should thank God for his merciful patience. It says in the Bible that God is patient and that we should count his patience as mercy because he desires more people to be saved. We've been saying this through this section of Jesus talking about things to come, that why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why hasn't the appointed time already arrived? And the answer to that in Scripture is because God is being patient. God is giving us time. God is giving us time. He wants more people to believe. These interposing days are all about spending time seeking God. That's why they exist. So we should use this time to point people to God verbally, yes, but also through acting out the faith that we, if you're a believer, have through our deeds, showing our faith by what we do, as James talks about. Secondly, don't get the equation switched around. Don't put works first and keep trying to strive towards getting some faith based on those works. That would be like showing up at the judgment and Jesus coming and saying, I'm going to examine this fig tree and I find fruit on it. This is good. Or someone showing up and saying, look, I've been collecting all this fruit and here you go. And Jesus says, well, that fruit is rotten. It's not a growing tree. What good is that fruit to me? Right? If we take that, that fruit analogy and stretch it out a little bit to say it's, it's more about growing that fruit out of your faith than not just acquiring it and hanging on to it. It's about being a living, breathing, working your faith out in real world actions. So being saved is going to bring those good deeds. The good deeds aren't going to bring you faith. Good deeds are not going to save you. Don't switch those pieces around. Third, for believers, God has prepared work for you to do already. He's already prepared those things in advance and asks you to walk in them. And he promises that you'll bear fruit. Abide in me and I in you. You will 
bear fruit. Don't get caught up in all this like striving. I got I to work so hard to get this fruit done and I just got to get it all done. I got to check this stuff off my list. Jesus is saying, what I want you to do is abide in me. I want you to abide in me. I want you to believe the gospel more and more and more and never get sick of hearing it. And if you're doing that, you're going to bear fruit. The sheep are surprised when Jesus says to them, you did all of this stuff for me. They're like, what? When did I do that? I don't even remember doing that. Because God is doing it through them. They don't even think about it anymore. They're bearing fruit out of this promise that God has. They're walking through these good deeds that, that God has laid out for them. They're not even thinking about it in that sense anymore. That's the way we need to be. So number four, serve the church. Just serve the church. Out of your faith, out of your belief for the gospel, serve the church. Jesus is saying, when you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you're doing it for me. You're doing it for my body here on earth. So don't live in this, in this paralyzing fear of like, oh, but I don't, I don't think I'm any good at anything. Well, how am I supposed to do? Don't live in that fear. Think of it in, in the reverse to say, I believe. Jesus, I believe. I don't see where I'm gifted, but I believe. And I'm just going to keep walking. And I trust that you have these good works prepared for me. And I'm just going to walk in them. You will, you will serve the church. There are opportunities here at Hiawatha, real actual service opportunities that there are needs for. There's kids ministry, there's hospitality, there's tons of ministries. You can see that um, in, your, in your worship folder on the communication card. You can check boxes and stuff. Those are opportunities to serve the church. Those are opportunities to bear fruit. But don't switch it around and say, well, Peter's saying that I, I have to serve so that I can, be, I can have good faith and be saved. Don't switch it around. Abide in Jesus. Abide. Don't cut yourself off from that vine because he's promising you that you will bear much fruit by abiding in him. And apart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it's both encouraging and sobering. But I thank you that you promise us that it's not about what we do, that you promise us that when we believe, when we abide in you, that we will stand before you on judgment day and you will open the book of life and read our name and not read what we've done, but read our name. So I pray that for us. I pray that you would work in the hearts of all of us here today, that you would impress upon us that you want us to believe, that you have destined us for a place before the creation of the world, and that you invite us to yourself, to your cross, to kneel and believe, to repent of our sin, and to walk forward with you through the deeds that you have laid out for us. Pray that for us today. In your name, amen. Thanks, Peter. Let's.